This morning we're going to talk a lot about relationships. And no, I am not a matchmaker. And you should be thankful for that. I don't know if you've ever had the sad experience of having uh, a close friend betray you and that once close relationship had now been severed and perhaps still is. Or maybe, like most of us, you've had a friendship with someone where you've hit some bumps along the way and uh, there was some distance that was created as a result of sin and offenses, a betrayal of trust. But in the end, you've been able to patch things up and resume that friendship. That's probably a pretty common experience for most of us. Even less common is likely a friendship like this, where from the very first day, it seemed like you were of one heart. Whether there have been troubles along the way or not, they just don't even register as a blip because you're so prone to forgive one another. You have such intimacy and friendship and closeness. They're minor. They've been quickly forgotten. And from that day to this day, everything just clicked. Relationships are tricky because in order for us to have friendships, we have to trust someone and we have to love someone. And that in spite of the fact that we have been hurt by people we have trusted and loved in the past. As we look at John 13 this morning, I I think that this idea of a relationship that Jesus has with his disciples is, is just a blanket that encapsulates this whole chapter. And it is designed by John to show us the incredible love that Jesus has for his disciples, even, even the unfaithful ones. So as you look at John 13 and verse 1, we're told now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We're seeing right here from the outset that Jesus loved all of his disciples. All of them. We see that in the verses 1 through 17. And then as we look toward the end of the chapter in verses 18 through 36, we see a different tone that takes place where this love is lived out in such a way that Jesus is going to identify broken relationships And yet he is going to call his disciples to love one another as he has loved them. It is no surprise that John is often called the apostle of love. And so no doubt this experience and this event and this night resonated deeply in his heart. He had a closeness to the Lord that carried him to the very end of his days. We're told in verse 1 that Jesus loved all of his disciples. And John is summarizing Jesus' relationship as a relationship of love. And I think it's not just an introduction to chapter 13, but this actually moves us all the way through the end of this upper room discourse into chapter 17, even, one could argue, to 18 when he's being taken to the cross. He loved his own who were in the world all the years before that moment, and then he loved them to the very end, his last breath on the cross. 
And notice, in the, as you may have read this passage earlier this week in preparation, um, you look at verses 2 through 17, and we see that Jesus is about to shock everybody with this great act of humility and service. And what we read here is that Jesus loved them to the end. Verse 2 tells us that during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now we're going to come back to verses 2 and 3 in a moment, but I want us to just look at the shocking picture of what we are told in verses 4 and 5. Jesus, the rabbi, the great teacher to whom all of Israel was interested in meeting, strips off his outer garments and literally is in a loincloth. And then he takes a towel and wipes it, uh, wraps it around his waist and enough of it is hanging down that that hanging down part of the towel would be what he would use to dry the feet of his disciples. He is taking on the lowest form of a servant. Jewish law forbid any Jew from washing the feet of another. Maybe women or children could do it for an older person, but certainly, even if the disciples were willing to wash Jesus' feet, there is no way they would have washed one another's feet. That would have been an act of such, such humility and such lowness. It just would have never crossed their mind. And here is Jesus. You have to wonder in the, in the noise of this big mule, uh, meal as there's this big round table and in this time and day they would lay down. There weren't chairs that were used unlike the little humorous thing of Jesus as a carpenter making a table and trying to introduce it as a novel idea in the chosen. Um, this isn't the nature of what was taking place. And so they were stretched out on blankets, on on, on carpets and rugs and things like that. And the table was in front of them and they're all laying down. And so when Jesus arises and he starts stripping off his outer garments and he's just in a pair of shorts, you have to think that everyone stopped eating. And then he walks over and grabs a pitcher and pours it into a basin and he approaches one of his disciples and starts washing his feet and drying them with a towel around his waist. This is huge. Suffice to say, it is a huge act. Jesus strips down and he does this. And let's just also make the point that Jesus even washed Judas's feet. How's that for loving your enemies? He came to Simon Peter, verse 6 says, who said to him, Lord, do you intend to wash my feet? Like, Simon is the guy that speaks for everybody. They may have felt the same way Simon did, but no one dared speak up. But Simon's like, no, 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 this ain't right. And Jesus answered him in verse 7, what I am doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter protests the second time in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Peter is like realizing, oh, wow, 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 that's not what I want. 
And in verse 9, he says, Lord, not only my feet, but also wash my hands and my head. He, he doesn't want anything to separate him from Christ and, and to be near him and to have communion with him. And if that's going to separate it, then Lord, wash me completely. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. So let's, let's think about this for a moment. As this great act of humility is unfolding, Jesus takes on the form of a serpent. He serpent. He actually, this is the attire that a servant would have coming in to do this work. In this day and age, sandals and dusty roads, those of us that went to Africa, I mean, the dust was so fine that you could, you could kind of pat it and it would just create a cloud. So it was natural when guests came into a home that there was the lowest servant who wasn't going to be a Jew, but it would be a Gentile servant who would wash the feet of the guests. Their feet were filthy. I remember going to India, and the streets were really, really dirty. Uh, you saw all manner of filth there. And when you would come into a house, I grew up in Illinois, so you come into a house, your shoes stay on. Maybe that explains a lot of things, right? <laughs> but, but in India, everybody was quick to kick their shoes off right by the door. And you didn't walk into a house for the very reason that your shoes had been through all that. And so this is Jesus not only dressing like a servant, but he's actually acting like one. And then John comments on the devil seeding the heart of Judas. The two are now in league with one another to bring Jesus to the cross. This is going to come back up over and over throughout this chapter. And then finally it's culminated culmination in chapter 18. And then John comments on Jesus' knowledge of his special relationship with the Father, who had given the Son all things. The Son has come from God and would return to God. And this unique relationship, coupled with power and authority, makes what happens next all the more shocking. That Jesus did what he did. That he washed the feet of his disciples. Now, we need to understand, and we've seen this already in our series through the Gospel of John, that oftentimes he will record Jesus' words and they have a double meaning. Okay? So, and we see that at play here in Jesus' interactions with Peter from verses 6 through 10. Peter just thinks, oh my word, this is mind-blowing. You, you don't do this. This is really offensive. This is embarrassing. This is shameful. I should be washing your feet, but you, not mine. And then I'm not washing their feet, because that would mean I'm lower than my peers. And we know about the rivalry from the other Gospels between Jesus' own disciples, that they were always jockeying for position. Who would be the greatest in the kingdom? Hey, Lord, when you enter it, can I sit on your left and your right? And all this was going on. So here we see Jesus. Peter cannot grasp what he's seen, and so he tries to prevent Jesus from washing his feet. And in doing this, he reveals his pride rather than his humility. And Jesus tells Peter that he must trust him 
What I'm doing, you don't understand, but just let me do it. And Peter protests even more strenuously. He's so focused on this shameful act that he, along with the other disciples, could not see that Jesus was indeed the suffering servant. Friends, what we're seeing here isn't about the act of fush washing for itself. It is the fact that Jesus declared the Messiah would suffer many things when he went to Jerusalem. And he would give his life on a cross. He came to fulfill what we are reading in Isaiah 52 and 53 about this one who is so despised and rejected by men. He's crucified and he's, his face and body are so marred you don't even recognize that he's a man. This is the servant Jesus came to be and he would suffer. They're, they're not connecting. What Jesus is doing is taking on the very actions of a servant. He's already told us that as a good shepherd, he would give his life for his sheep. And now Jesus is saying that by my death, if you do not allow me to wash my feet, then you do not have any partaking of my death and the cleansing effect that it will have. Peter unknowingly responds in the vein of all who truly believe they can purify themselves. And Jesus has to get even more pointed in verse 8 by saying, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. There is no union between us. This idea of purification from sin, where does that come from? It is not from Jesus washing their feet. It is the unconditional requirement when we share life with Christ. And so Jesus is saying, I came to go to the cross, and on my way to the cross, I need to show you how the suffering servant will live and spend his life, both misunderstood suffering and serving. And therefore, if you don't let me do this, you have no idea how important the cross is going to be for you. That's the thing you need. So Peter's, what does he do? His, his reversal, his pivot would make any soldier embarrassed. His snap to and his ability to, to get ready. His reversal is so vociferous that he screams out, well then wash all of me. He knew Jesus loved him. He didn't want anything to separate he and his Lord. And then we get to verse 10, and I think this is a really important lesson for us about the difference between justification and sanctification. So I'd encourage you to really lean in and follow along as we look at this. Jesus says, basically, the person who's had a bath, let's, let's use this language for what it's intended to be. It's a metaphor. If you've had a bath, if you've been cleansed from your sins by the redemptive sacrifice of Jesus... That's justification. That person has been received all of the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. There is no reason why the process should be repeated. You've been justified. You've been cleansed. On the other hand, the cleansed person now needs only to wash his feet. Language that is used to describe sanctification. Christians... Have you ever been told that if you've sinned, that you need to ask to be saved yet again? Have you 
felt so bad about what you have just done that you despair. Can I even be a believer? Oh, Lord Jesus, if I wasn't sincere enough when I prayed as a young person or whenever it was, please hear my prayer for salvation and forgive me and save me. Jesus is showing us something very profound here about real important stuff. Theology. Justification is once and for all. It is final. In a world where you have taken a bath and you've cleansed yourself, yes, your feet are going to get dirty as you move from house to house as you go to the grocery store. But you don't have to wash your whole body again. You just need to wash the feet. And it's a metaphor for us working our ways through this sinful, corrupt world that is separated from God. That we are prone to sin And when we sin, we don't need to get saved again. We just need to grow in our sanctification. Our feet need to be washed. We need to pray, Father, forgive us for we have sinned. We need to pray, Lord, hear my plea for mercy. I confess my sin. And we need to remember 1 John 1, 9, that he's faithful and just to forgive us. And what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this picture that Jesus gives is that we, we have a theological truism. That once someone has been justified by the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, there is no further need to get saved again. What we need from that point on is daily or perhaps hourly cleansing in the form of sanctification. And we're going to be reminded of this even as we celebrate communion today. A meal that is designed to remember what Christ has done for us and to renew our vows to Him, as it were. To get ourselves in a mindset where, oh yeah, I need to realign myself to what I'm called to as a Christian. We reflect, we recalibrate ourselves to the death of our Savior That's the justification part. And we confess our sins and we recenter our lives on Jesus, our ongoing need for sanctification. And yet Jesus says, after this profound statement in verse 10, that not every one of you is clean. And John slows down to meditate and elaborate on that by speaking of Judas Jesus knew he would betray him, and that's why he said, not every one of you is clean. So you wonder if these final words of Jesus in verse 10 were uh, a last plea to Judas. Hey, man, I know what you're thinking about. Don't do it. I I don't know. We can only speculate. We're told in verse 2 that Satan had put it into his heart to betray Jesus, we, we know from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus or Judas had already gone to the chief priest and, and collected his silver to betray Jesus. He'd already been paid for the job. He was just looking for the, the right opportunity to do it. So I don't really think that Jesus has given him one last effort to turn away from it because he knew this had to happen. But what we can know for sure is that in spite of the church's best efforts, elders interviewing prospective members, that all through history there's been this mixing of believers and unbelievers in the body. That's what we can know for sure. And this is a warning to us all. 
You can mask yourself as a Christian. You can put on the clothes, adopt the language. Even if you didn't grow up in the church and you hear us singing songs where we're praising Jesus, and at the end of those songs, we are applauding, not the musicians and the worship team, but we're saying, hey, whether we lift our hands or we clap them, we are saying, blessed be the name. And you can adopt all that language, and you can look like a Christian. Judas did and not be one. And that's the warning. I mean, that is the most terrifying thing, to deceive yourself. And then to come on that day when Jesus says, no, I don't know you. Depart from me. Oh, but we did these things in your name. The other Gospels tells us uh, that Jesus sent his disciples out repeatedly to do mission work. They were casting out demons They were healing the sick. They were preaching the gospel. Judas was numbered among them in doing that thing. I mean, just the the sober reality where we can see the Spirit of God working in the church, and yet instead of it cleansing us and humbling us, we can resist the gospel and not believe. This is a sobering reality. And so let me just urge you, if this is where you find yourself, like I did, growing up the son of a pastor in church three times a week and not believing it, please, please, please pray if you find yourself in that place. God, change my heart. Looking at verses 12 through 17, Jesus now explains his actions. We're told that when he had washed their feet and put it on his outer garments, he resumed his place and he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash another's feet, one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master." nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. We want to pause here for a moment and just look at these relationships that Jesus is describing, right? He he wants them to know not only does he love them, but he's shown his love in the fact that he has denied himself the status of teacher and Lord and took on the form of a servant. He asks them in verse 12, do you know what I've done? And then he declares to them his authority. I am your teacher and your Lord. And then he applies it. I want you to do what I've done to you. In other words, I want you not to wash one another's feet. That's not the the end goal. That's not the pinnacle of Christianity. Because we could all fake that, right? We could abuse foot washing. If it were an ordinance like communion or baptism, we could just wash one another's feet and fake humility. I'm a better Christian than you are because I'm willing to do this. And man, your feet are stinky. And you know, 
all that other stuff. Well, Jesus is like, what I want you to do is I want you to serve one another with the same humility that I've served you. And then he gives this principle in verse 16. A servant isn't greater than his master. A messenger or an ambassador is not greater than the one who sent him. It's the president of the United States who is the great one. The ambassadors in the neighboring countries, they represent his will, his desires, his presence, his authority. They are not a president. They're an ambassador. And Jesus is making this point, and he, he really sharpens the pencil in verse 17. Blessed are you if you do them. And knowledge is great. And some of us have so much Bible knowledge, we've forgotten what to do with it. Jesus is like, do the word. James must have picked up on this, right? Because he says, it's, if you hear the word and then you don't do it, you're like a man who looked at himself in the mirror and saw how disheveled he was and then went away and forgot. But we need to hear the word and then do the word. And that's what Jesus is getting at. He condemns those who, ref- who hear his words but refuse to keep them. And, and so let me just address. I know there's going to be a question about, like, well, do we do foot washing? And where we were at in Pennsylvania, uh, Mennonites would practice foot washing. Um, I know some brethren churches do that. And there may be other denominations that practice that. Well, why don't we? Aren't we good Christians? Well, this was an act of humble service to others, as we've already mentioned. But we need to understand the point Jesus is trying to get to. It's not guys... Uh, I've set you an example. The example wasn't the foot washing. Okay? Because they'd seen that done before. The weight and the power of this acted out parable that Jesus does comes from the fact of who he is taking the form of a servant. It's not what he's supposed to do. That's the act. That's the example. The the foot washing just serves as a prop. What Jesus is trying to get at is that Christians who love me, they're going to look like me. That means that they're going to spend themselves and be spent not only for the sake of the gospel, but they will serve in obscure and humble ways because they are trying to do good to the people around them. There's not big neon signs flashing on them. They're not going to Twitter or X. They're not going to Instagram or Facebook to brag about, oh, I did this, I did that. They're serving. And Jesus is pointing to an even greater act of service. Everything that he does is pointing to the cross. And what we observe in the cross is our Lord, our Savior, our teacher laid down his life His perfect and sinless life for sinners. He did it for the good of others. And that principled self-denial is what believers are being called to imitate. Not the act of foot washing. The further we see this in the New Testament, early church documents, we don't read of foot washing as an ordinance being practiced like baptism in the Lord's table. So we move to verses 18 through 38. And we see in his great love for his disciples, he acted out a parable of great humility and service to teach them how to imitate 
his love. And now he's going to identify some relationships that don't reflect love. And yet his love for his disciples does not waver. Looking at verses 18 through 36, verses 18 through 20 are a really interesting statement. Jesus is hinting at a betrayal, and then he gets very specific about that betrayal in verses 21 through 26, uh, or 21 through 30. And again, we see a double meaning of Jesus. He'll hint at Judas's betrayal, while also, at the same time, he's preparing his disciples for his death. So, although I chose you all, one of you is not clean, he says in verse 18. We've already talked about how Judas was chosen to be a part of the twelve, and yet he failed to truly give his heart to Jesus. Who would be surprised by, uh, well, the disciples would be surprised by Judas' actions, but Jesus would not. And it's not unusual, as we've already mentioned, this mixing of of. Uh, believers and non-believers within the church. This was also the reality of Israel throughout the Old Testament, where you had people of the true covenant community, and you had people who were just there uh, doing the things, but their hearts were not towards God. Jesus quotes, or refers to Psalm 41 and verse 9. If you notice that, the scripture will be fulfilled as, as John um, includes, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This is, this is a total insult to lift your heel, to show the bottom of your foot to one of your peers. Um, eating the bread is a symbol of proximity, of closeness, of honor, of trust, of respect. And so there's this image that comes to us from Psalm 41 that if, if you read that psalm, you'll see that David is really, really ill. And all of his enemies are like standing outside his door, rubbing their hands together, looking for the day when the word comes, he's drawn his last breath. He's dead. And they want to celebrate that. That's verses 4 through 8 of Psalm 41. And we get to verse 9 where it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And it's led to even a close, intimate trusted friend. Some think that this may have been a reference to Absalom, his own son. But it ends, this psalm doesn't end with David declaring he's dead. Uh, That would be a little interesting. But um, it ends with a confidence in God's saving and resurrecting grace. So if you read verses 10 through 13 of Psalm 41, you see that he's praising God. He's confident that God is going to restore him. What was David's hope proved to be Jesus' reality? Because Jesus' betrayal would lead to his exaltation. And Jesus tells the disciples in verse 19, guys, I'm telling you all this, so when the stuff hits the fan, you know what's up and what's down. You know the score. It's going to be very confusing. All of this slow process is going to just move into hyperspeed in just a few hours when I am arrested. And when you find out that I was betrayed by Judas, the guy you all trusted, you gave him the money. He's the one that everybody respected. And he's the one who betrayed me. And then you're going to see me crucified and dead. And you're going to want to scatter. Let me just say, I'm telling you all this in advance so that you will believe that I am he. And I wonder if Jesus isn't 
adopting that Old Testament language of Yahweh, the great I am that we see is introduction to Moses in Exodus 3, what Isaiah saw in his visions in Isaiah 41 and 43. And then verse 20 functions as a bridge where Jesus' example of selfless love and humility is to be a pattern for the disciples to follow. It bridges this passage, 13 through 17, with chapter 20, where Jesus is going to commission the disciples just as the Father sent him into the world, he's going to send them into the world. In effect, Jesus is saying, you guys may think that this has all come to naught. Judas's betrayal and my death. But I want you to understand, as confused as you may be and as devastated as you may be, know this, that the resurrection is going to solve all of that. It's going to bring hope and even greater faith. You think about that, Christian. We, we were told that the Father had given all things to His Son. Verse 3. And we see that the enemy plants a seed within Judas's heart. And then as we continue on, Jesus is troubled in the spirit. He testified, truly, I will say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples are confused over who this is. And, and we see that in verse, uh, uh, where is it? Uh, verse 27, that after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus told him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And he immediately went out, verse 30 tells us. I I think what we're supposed to see and understand is that Jesus has been given all things, all authority, all glory, all power, and it's been granted him by the Father. And it will be given to us as his representatives into the world. And even though one of his closest associates will betray him, that nothing is going to happen that God doesn't want to happen. This isn't fatalism. This is a real rock-solid understanding that God is sovereign, even in your life, even in my life. Jesus reveals that one was going to betray him, and and the disciples were told in verse 22, look at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And so one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's John, the writer of this gospel, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Many think that he was on Jesus' right side there. And so Peter flags him down, gets John's attention, and kind of like, asking, you're right there. Who is this? So that disciple then, because they're laying down, he kind of leans back against Jesus and looks over his shoulder and he says, who is it? Who are you talking about? And Jesus answered him, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said, what you're going to do, do quickly. And no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. What we see here is that Jesus is going to identify his betrayer. And perhaps John heard and understood in a whispered voice from Jesus what was going on. But in any event, John tells us that no one got it. 
It was lost on everybody who this betrayer was. They all think that Judas is being sent to do a task. And yet again, once again, we see the love of Christ. Because some commentators, thinking that John was on Jesus' right, believe in order for Jesus to dip bread into a cup of wine and give it to somebody, that Judas had to be on his left. A seat of honor. A position close to the teacher. And here's Jesus, yet again, serving one of his creation. And not a good guy. One of his enemies. And so he is showing incredible love to someone who has chosen to be his enemy. And then Jesus instructed Judas to do it quickly, even though Satan entered into his heart with the idea and then took possession of him. And I know we want to get into some of that. How does all this work and what does it mean for you and I as Christians? That's not the point of this text. We'll have to address that later. But what is clear is that Jesus was releasing Judas and Satan. Judas didn't just get up and go, okay, that's my clue. Satan didn't tell him to do something. He still had to wait to be dismissed by Jesus. Do you see that? Jesus is the one who holds all this together. Nobody does anything without his permission. Even Satan listens to Christ. Yet the disciples didn't understand this. They see Judas getting the sop. They're shocked that hearing that one of them is going to betray Jesus. I mean, after all, they've just, their minds have been blown. He just washed their feet. And now he's giving something to Judas and telling him to go do something. They're they're so rattled, they can't comprehend this. And what do we read in verse 30? That after receiving the morsel of bread, after being told what you're going to do, go and do it quickly, he immediately went out and noticed the imagery that John uses, and it was night. He has entered the darkness. He is in league with the prince of darkness. And yet we see that God is sovereign over evil. Nothing stops God from achieving his plans. And as we look, Jesus, when he had gone out, he then turns to the disciples. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. There's a lot of glorifies in that passage. You see how all this works together to bring him glory? I mean, even your enemies' worst efforts to smear you at work and to destroy your reputation, even if we were to suffer, as many Christians do around this world, for the name of Christ, even if it were to be, are you a Christian? Okay, there's a bullet. Are you a Christian? Then there is a knife for the throat. Are you a Christian? Then it's a beheading or a burning. Know that even in that suffering for Jesus, he will be glorified. He has the power to redeem darkness and sin and to turn it into beauty and to make something good come out of ashes. Jesus moves from his betrayal to his glory. He wants us to know that every part of suffering that was in his path was a step in the direction of exaltation. 
And this relational and ministerial disaster was actually going to be a part of God's plan to bring glory to himself and Jesus. This is what it means for us to follow Christ, to not dictate the terms to our Savior, but to live our life well for the gospel, whatever path that may be. If Jesus can use a traitor to bring himself glory, then he can certainly use you as a Christian. Jesus announced he would be leaving them soon, and that threw the panic again. Little children, I am with you, verse 33, a little while, and you will seek me, and just as I said to you, the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. To hear that Jesus would be leaving stirred the heart of his disciples. And yet, once again, we see Simon Peter, who's lost uh, any, he doesn't connect anywhere to Jesus' command to love one another, and said what his focus is on, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Here in this passage, we see the incredible love of Christ willing to go to the cross for you and I. He's got one disciple who is going to outright betray him. And then he's got another that represents all the other 11 in denying him and fleeing from him. And yet, what is the constant reality of all these relationships? That Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That his love for you and I cannot be prevented, dissuaded, broken, by our own actions or the evil in this world. How comforting that should be to us. How deep the Father's love for us that He gave Christ, but how deep is Christ's love for us that He gave Himself? Jesus defines love by His actions, not theirs, not their opinions, certainly not their feelings. What a contrast to our own understanding of love in this day. There's no mention of feelings at all uh, other than the fact that Jesus is troubled by what is about to come to him. Rather, what's emphasized over and over in this passage is Jesus' loving actions. After all, can anyone truly know our heart without our words and our deeds? Even even if we're the strong, silent type. You're communicating something with your body language and your face. It's an action. Peter's question prompts Jesus' disclosure of his denial. Should, be, should Peter be surprised in light of what the other gospel uh, writers record that Jesus had repeatedly said he's going to Jerusalem to die? He would be buried, 
and he would rise again. And here's Peter hearing it, and he's like, what trip are you taking? I want to go. Oh, you can't go. But I want to. You, you can't go now. You will be with me later. Well, I would give my life for you. That shows that Peter understood Jesus is talking about the cross. And Peter tells, or Peter learns that his loyalty will be tested and that he will deny Jesus three times. We conclude this passage with that sobering reality. And it would be easy to just be hard on Peter as the guy who does deny Jesus three times. He's scared by a girl. I mean, that's kind of embarrassing, right, for all of us guys? A little girl intimidates him. We'll see it in chapters 18. Uh, but in reality, Peter did what all the other disciples did. He left Jesus in his greatest hour of suffering, watching from a distance, disassociating himself with the Lord. And we could just focus on that and the heaviness of the fact that we all are prone to betray Christ. But friends, that's not the tone of the passage, is it? You think back to the songs that we sang, uh, rejoicing in our King, that He is our firm foundation, that we are going to build our lives on Christ. Why is all that the songs that we chose to sing today? Because the passage is talking about an unbreakable love. And it's not from us to Him, it's from Him to us. It's a love that's going to keep us. It's a love that's going to hold us fast. It's a love that is prepared for yours and mine denials and is eager to welcome us back in when we confess our sins. It's a love that doesn't harbor grudges. It's a love that is demonstrated by a life that is given for the good of others. That's the love that we're called to rejoice over. That's the, that's the love that we're celebrating here in communion. And so as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are testifying, one, that truly we are in Christ. Play no games with the Lord's table. There is a real warning in the Scriptures that some in the early church did, and they got so sick from eating and drinking unworthily of this that their lives were lost for their blasphemy. Now, is that going to happen? Well, as a kid who did that for 19 years, it didn't happen, but that's not a case study that I would want to play the numbers with. The reality is this is to be an act done by true Christians for the right reasons, not imposters, not counterfeits. And it's because we know and have experienced the love of Christ. And then in this moment, we are giving ourselves back to the one who gave himself to us and saying, take my life. It all belongs to you. How can we do anything other than that in light of this great love? Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage to celebrate this table with understanding. As we drink and as we eat, we do so with the looking forward to that coming of Christ when we will share this table in heaven with him. And so we pray, Lord, that not only would you do a work as we've worked through this passage and seen your incredible act of service in giving your life for us on the cross and then doing something shocking to point us to that, taking on the form of a servant, 
But we pray also, Lord, that you would stir us so that we would love you more. We would lean into that love when we feel as though we are unlovable. And Lord, it's also our prayer that if there are some in our midst who have not yet experienced the forgiveness, the grace, and the peace that comes from confessing to Christ, I am a sinner and I need you to wash me, to truly cleanse me, that you would do that even this morning. Lord, we ask these things in the powerful and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's take a moment before we share in this table to just pray. Take the opportunity to say, Lord, I need my feet washed today, and you've done that. You've proven faithful yet again. Help me to be able to share in this, in this bread and this cup with joy and a clean conscience. And then I would also say that if you're not a Christian, when we pass these things out, you just let them go by. No one's going to look at you, but this is an opportunity for us to express our faith. So just reflect on what we've said and what you've heard this morning and be happy to have a conversation with you about more of that later. Come and see me afterward. Let's take a moment now and confess our sins um, before we hear a prayer of a pardon.